let's talk about the future. You're listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine and the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. In this series, Mary Fayton interviews industry experts in three fascinating conversations about what our cultural landscape might look like in 10 years' time. We're exploring the future relationship between the arts in three important areas, the environment, health and wellbeing, and tourism. We acknowledge the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders past and present. With both sectors getting back on their feet post-pandemic, how can the relationship between Western Australian arts and culture and tourism be strengthened for the benefit of both? And what could that future look like? These are the anchor points in this conversation for the Chamber of Arts and Culture WA's series, Let's Talk About the Future. It's my pleasure to introduce three expert panellists to this conversation, Di Bain, Mark Howitt and Helen Curtis. Di Bain is Chair of Tourism WA and Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Perth. A former ABC News reporter, she ran her own media company and then became involved with Activate Perth, which ignited her interest in creating a more vibrant and diverse city. Di was elected to Perth City Council in 2020. Mark Howitt is a proud Noongar man, Director of Place Management for the Arts and Culture Trust. He is an award-winning director and designer for theatre, dance, opera and film with significant large-scale international experience. Mark was a founding member of Bangara Dance Theatre and later artistic director for Oka Contemporary Dance Company. And Helen Curtis is founder and director of creative consultancy Apparatus, which specialises in integrating art and interpretive design into built form. Currently advising on several major transformative development projects, Helen has worked as a visual artist in cultural heritage, urban design and planning, built form design, master planning and Aboriginal engagement. Thank you all so much for joining this conversation. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Di, I want to start with you. Um, I want to do a bit of a scene setter to begin with and to understand historically what the what the measure of success has been for tourism in Western Australia in terms of their interface with arts and culture. So Tourism Western Australia obviously receives its budget and its money from the Treasurer and we have a return on investment um, formula that we've agreed and so I would say typically you've seen uh, tourism support a large number of major sporting events because the return on investment formula uh, works quite well with sporting events. Um, it's a very simple calculation, the number of out-of-state international visitors coming to a sponsored event let's say Manchester United playing at Optus Stadium, we see them come, buy a ticket, they spend on average a few days here and um, we have an average formula that we calculate that gives us the return on investment. So traditionally events around arts and culture have a slow burn of return on investment and there's a, there's a lot of dividends that are so subjective around sponsoring um, arts and cultural events. We do do it, but mostly in regional areas. But um, I'm, I'm very happy to say that in recent years with the McGowan government, we've, we've been working on new ways to incorporate arts and culture into business as usual activity at Tourism Western Australia. 
Mark, can I ask you the question from the perspective of arts and culture then? What's your perception at the moment of the, the strength of the relationship between arts and culture and tourism in WA? I think we're on the beginning of a new journey um, and the start of trying to find ways of enhancing in the same way that sport went through, enhancing projects so that they're large enough that we have the scale that will start attracting tourists into our district. I think we do a lot of work, especially in arts and culture, where we make works on a on a smaller scale purely to try to employ as many people as we can. But I think often if we coordinated better with each other that we might have the chance to actually make festivals and larger events that then can attract the tourists as well, both internally in the state and externally and overseas, to our incredible, unique culture, the oldest ongoing culture in the world, you know, some of the oldest ongoing cultures in the world. And I think it's the uniqueness of our culture and as we are as people in Western Australia and our incredible landscape that will draw people to us. And Helen, your perspective on on the relationship between arts and culture and tourism in WA across your experience so far? What Mark said, um, but also uh, our landscape is phenomenal and beautiful and breathtaking and our the Aboriginal culture that we have here, the oldest continuous living culture in the whole world, is extraordinary. And where arts and culture sits is the opportunity to talk about those two things and explain them to people. So I think that what Tourism WA has done with their recent campaign is to link all of those three things together beautifully and arts and culture really sits at the heart of that. That's exactly what we need to come to now because this conversation is so beautifully timed with the launch of that branding which just happened yesterday. So, Di, can I go back to you? And and I'd love to hear a bit more of the story behind this campaign and what you were trying to achieve because it does feel like a turning point. Yeah, so Tourism Western Australia and the tourism industry generally have been buffeted around for the last couple of years with covid and uh, we entered a, a new space, which is the intrastate space, when our borders were shut. And it was our opportunity to, I guess, with the West Australian public, get to know Western Australia again. And it was an opportunity for the agency itself to have a strategic think about our obligation to community and to the people of Western Australia through the work that we're doing. Um, so we made a strategic decision to... Um, I guess you could say, cease the contract of the East Coast Agency that was providing us um, with um, creative services. Um, That contract came to an end, a conclusion, and we had an opportunity to work with a West Australian um, company. We did the brief internally, in-house. We already had tonnes of research that had been done. We knew that the essence of Western Australia was that we're a, we're a place of time, space, freedom and connection. They're our pillars. That's who we are. Takes time to get here. We know that. We're a long way from lots of other places. But if you've got the luxury of time to come here, you're probably the kind of traveller that we need. We have an ancient culture, time 60,000 years and counting, and that kind of time is incredible. So we want to we tell the world about that 
as well. But the freedom and the space, the connection, we know we're a vast state. We've got lots, lots of things to offer. But um, I think what was critical for us was that the tone of how we were selling Western Australia to, to the world was uniquely West Australian. Uh, so we didn't want to be gimmicky. We didn't want to poke fun of at ourselves. We just really wanted to show excellence and develop something that was aspirational. And underneath all of that will come all the tactical stuff. So you'll, you'll start seeing $175 flights with Qantas return flights to Perth and all the tactical sort of more tangible things that you normally see in ad campaigns, that'll all fall underneath this. But um, when we engaged with the brand agency, they came up with walking on a dream. They came up with the concept of um, using Luke Steele, West Australian favourite. And it all just came together beautifully. And I think it, it was really for us inside Tourism Western Australia as an as an agency, Carolyn Turnbull, our managing director, the board of commissioners, the deputy premier, along with our marketing team, we all had a sense of confidence. We knew exactly what what we wanted. We didn't know what the creative would come out like, but because we were clear in in what we knew we needed, the brand agency was able to interpret that creatively so beautifully. And right from the moment they pitched the idea. To filming it, they've uh, employed about a dozen West Australians full time on the production. So that's since uh, I think they started shooting. I want to say February, March, and you know they've gone all around Western Australia. From the time they chose Rika and um, Ian, um, our, our excellent contemporary dancers, who are who are now the face of Western Australia. Um, <laughs> they kind of overwhelmed Rika yesterday when I said, you realise that you're the, you're the face of Western Australia now. And all, all of it just came together beautifully and no one picked the eyes out of it. No one sort of said, right, no, I don't like that scene or I don't want that in there. I don't want the whale shark <laughs> up in the sky. And that's, I think, because we didn't fiddle around with the creative and we let the creatives be the creatives. We ended up w- with what will be an enduring, really good quality brand campaign. Thank you. Mark, I'd love to hear your reaction. You've seen well, you've seen the campaign. I, um, I loved the campaign because I, I think the thing that really struck me was it's our voice. And the more that we speak as Western Australians, the more that uh, other people can gauge with it that don't come from Western Australia because it's our unique voice. It's not it's not gimmicked in any way and it's not a strategy that comes from what other people think Western Australians should be like. It's from Western Australian and I think that's core to everything. Of all the touring I did around the world, the shows that really resonated not only with me but audiences in general was when we told Western Australian stories like Cloud Street when we toured that. You know, and it's showing our unique culture in all of its manifestations that people will want to engage with. And that includes the conversation we have with each other and with them when they come on to Budjar onto country. And I think that the ad is shows that on this incredible, magnificent Budjar, this country across the whole state and state, I mean, I think the drive from Broome to Durring Kananara is to Kununurra is as magnificent as the Great Ocean Road, if not better. It's such incredible country. And then knowing that all the Aboriginal cultures have such a strong connection to country and with that is cultural stories and that if 
we allow Aboriginal people to have the power to exchange those stories in the way that they would like to do it, then we've got this unique opportunity that cannot be replicated anywhere else in the world. And I think that's really exciting. It's very exciting stuff. Can I ask you, Helen, uh, you know, when when you saw the, the campaign for the first time, how did it make you feel? I was so proud, Mary, so proud. Thank you, Di, and thanks everyone at Tourism WA for such a fantastic effort. We were talking before about excellence and how for a long time I think the whole of Australia has imported excellent cultures from elsewhere. But this feels really like a moment where, where we have just where we understand we don't need to look to anywhere else for excellence, it's all here. And I think that that's testament to all of the Western Australian producers, creatives that you employed for this campaign. It's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, I think it's amazing. We've got so much here. Um, the campaign promises so much, uh, you know, when people come here. They're, they're not being promised sports events. They're not being promised other things. They're not being promised fishing events or anything like that. <laughs> they're being promised arts and culture. So now I think what happens next, we have to deliver on that promise. I think that's that's kind of what we need to start talking about in the arts community is what's the offering to all the people that come here and how can we expand on the stories that we're telling? How can we do yeah. that better and more and deliver on the promise? Yeah, and give the next generation the confidence West of Western Australians mm. to tell that story in every capacity from producing the shows to being the creatives on it to being, you know, that we don't have to rely on interstate or overseas practitioners telling us how to explain where we live and welcoming other people onto our country. Mm. You know, we really do have the capacity to do it ourselves and Mm. be confident in that because when we do, then people want to engage with that confidence and that uniqueness. And I I really hope that, um, you know, it sparks a bit of a, a momentum towards all of us having the confidence going, you know what, we can do this in the same way that we do with sport you know, that we, we're confident we can play this game, we can do it at a world level, then we, I know we certainly can do that with arts and culture as well and I hope we take that mantle on. It sounds like you're saying, Mark, that this is the, the, the dying moments of the cultural cringe in Western Australia. I hope so because, I, I, you know, when I was a 15-year-old first starting in Perth as a young technician at the Playhouse, everyone told me it's Sydney, Melbourne and then overseas at a push and then, you know, oh, because you're from Western Australia, you really never have a chance. But if you really push hard enough and you believe in yourself and you believe in what you've been taught by other Western Australians, then you you have just as much ability to do it as anybody else. Mm. And I think the ad makes me feel that, especially seeing Ian in there, who's in a way is a manifestation of all of our hopes and aspirations about the next generation being the holders of of our progression in, into presenting ourselves to the rest of the world. I've got to say, Mary, I think, I think that idea died maybe 10, 20 years ago and it's just the rest of the world catching up. <laughs> <laughs> I like your attitude. Yeah. 
Maybe if I could just also add to that, I think um, as a government statutory authority, we are very aware of the responsibility that we have to capacity building in the arts and culture sector. And that comes with providing sufficient funding for sufficient events that are you know, we're looking at arts and culture events. You know, if, if we are going to import them in, they need to be exclusive to us. But we also are looking at homegrown events. And this has been something that Tourism Western Australia has been talking about for some time. And if I was here in four or five weeks, I could probably tell you a thing or two <laughs> <laughs> about that. But it's absolutely a number one item on our agenda for 2023 is to develop homegrown events, which employ West Australians in the arts sector and give them all a year-round work mm. so that they don't have to... Uh, a lot of people really do want to live in Western Australia and they, they want to be here with their families, but they have to, you know, just spend a little bit of time here and then travel everywhere else to try and maintain their livelihood. That was my whole mm. life works practice. So I was away nine months of the year and probably home for three, and it's only now you know, after 40 years of making that I actually feel like I'm in a position where I can stay at home and I was getting work overseas and interstate. I always got work interstate, but it, there was never the opportunity to actually be a Perth-based practitioner and mm. it feels like now it might start being possible. Yeah, and I think if if we can step into that space and collaborate with Arts and Culture Trust, our boards will be coming uh, together in the next couple of months um, and work with the other ministries, the other portfolios which fund things like um, screen and, and film and that kind of thing and just all collaborate, communicate and work together. I think the dollars that we have will go further and will help capacity build in Western Australia and we can, you know, truly go on on that journey of realising the, the gaps in our you know, tourism offering in our tourism calendar because we know that if someone comes here for a sporting event or a convention or a conference and there's an additional, you know, there's an arts and culture event and it might not be exclusive content, it might be something that's just uniquely West Australian that that we're doing, they will stay longer and they will take more time out mm -hmm. to experience, experience that. And that's the holy grail for tourism. You want people mm. to come, but you want them to also stay and spend. Yeah. <laughs> Let's reflect on some of our successes then so far and, you know, the, the times when we have actually nailed it in terms of, uh, or do on a regular basis, in fact, with festivals, nail that interface between arts and culture and tourism and, and you know, how that's worked so well. Um, and perhaps I'll start with you, Mark, on that one. Uh, with Perhaps we can talk about Bunawaning. Well, I, the thing that about Bonawaning and I was one of the senior creators on that was it was the interface between art, budja and science, yeah? So when we made that work and Next Generation with Children, yeah, is when we made that work, it was founded on the Wajak Advisory Group um, informing us on the direction forward and that we did an arts reaction to the country, to the Buja, and the Kings Park science component of, of their structure also contributed to the way that we were presenting it. And I think that's right. It's like the more, Di's right about the more that we collaborate with each other, the more that we bring in different elements of it, 
it reinforces that art is also good for our well-being as well and that tourists want to engage with something that makes them feel good and and that there is I was reading a really interesting article by Professor Wang from ECU about that tourism improves your well-being and lessens the costs to government through the health services and stuff. And I think the main argument, the sort of rudimentary argument you get from the general public about it is, oh, we spend this money on art, but we're not doing anything about the hospitals. <laughs> and it's not just one way. Hospitals are extremely important and the government has a very strong focus on it. But there are other ways of improving a health that doesn't have an economic impact on what we do. And art is one way of trying to progress that further as well. And I think that Bornawaning really brought all of those elements together and engaged so many Western Australians who walked through that in our beautiful summer balmy evenings in an arts event that probably had a multi-generational effect because young kids would remember that in the same way that we remember the old, for the really uh, older Western Australians who can still remember the two ships in front of the brewery that used to flash in between each other. Indeed. And what an emotional effect that had on you. And I think it's sort of doing more of those sort of events where we bring in the combined energy of everyone to make something that's bigger and greater. For me, if we're talking about built form, we can look at Calberry Skywalk, yeah. which is really interesting. Um, so many of you listeners would have gone to would have gone to the Calberry Skywalk, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, utilising an amazing natural asset. Although I hate using the word asset when it comes to nature, that sounds really wrong. <laughs> it's like it's activation. Nature, um, but it, it's a really extraordinary landscape that you might not ordinarily go to unless mm-hmm. there was, um, you know, this epic structure that had been built that has a cafe. We all like a cup of coffee. There's um, bathrooms there. There's a little bit of a cafe. But there's also, importantly, interpretation by that was in con- done in consultation with the Nandi people. So mm-hmm. it's all about, you know, the geography was here before anyone. Aboriginal people were here first, our First Nations people, and then it was the rest of us came along. Mm. So, you know, that story is really front and centre at Calberry Skywalk Mm. and all of the stats and the research are now showing that it has brought in a massive tourism, um, you know, the offering has really delivered. We were up there a couple of years ago and the tourist provider or the, what do you call them, tour operator that we went to, to, to... who showed us around was saying that people were getting on planes and flying into Calberry from overseas. So they're landing in Perth, having a night in Perth and going up to Calberry. That's fantastic. Um, so I think that that's a, a really good example of how we've done it really well. I think we need to roll that out way more all over the state because there are other natural assets that are being completely ignored um, that are really amazing, like Walgana and Wilgie mm. Meyer. Mm-hmm. Have we talked about that before, Mark? Have I talked about that with you? No, not with me. So Walgana is one of the the second biggest monolith in Western yep. Australia, like it's rock. I know it well. Yep, yep. 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 Walgana has amazing rock art yep. that's been around there since, you know, the Ice Age. Yep. Um, not far away is Wilgie Meyer, which is the oldest human mine. 
in the whole of the planet. Yeah. And there was red ochre that was mined yeah. there for thousands of year, years, and they mm. found that red ochre up in the Torres Strait Islands and dated it to thousands of years old. So there's so many stories that can oh. be told with there. Walgana is en route to Karajini, so there's a, an amazing offering en route to Karajini because there's lots of inter- and interstate traffic that takes that road road up. Mm-hmm. Um, but currently it is on someone's private property behind a cyclone fence that's completely mm. inaccessible with no no tourism happening there and it's being eroded. Yeah. So um, that's a bit of a sad story. And mm. I'm sure that there are stories like this all over Western Australia mm. where we could, there there are assets that could be you know, with a bit of investment could be really quite amazing tourism offerings. I mean, we talked quite a lot about large-scale events, but also I think those little boutique tour guides are really important as well because mm. what you get to do with, the, like, those cultural tours is sit down in the dirt and have a yarn and mm. talk about the local culture. You get to understand the country as well as the culture because they're so interrelated with each other and have an incredible, unique experience that could possibly even be life-changing. And so it's really, it's quite a complex thing, and I don't envy Di in any way because it's sort of like you go from these incredible large-scale events that need all of these production values and things for that to really work Mm. and are really great for local businesses and stuff, but that unique sitting in the dirt, having a conversation with a tour guide is just as important as the large-scale events. Mm. And and I think that's what's so great about the promotion at the moment is you can see all of that within it all. It is the immediacy of being an individual in the country mm. and a participant in a crowd mm. watching something um, that's a big scale and exciting. And I think that's what people want when they come to Perth and they go to the regions is they want to see what's unique to here and what's unique to here is... It's a little bit tricky as well because when I was running Oka, we really wanted to have a a trail, a bindi, if you like, mm. a path where tour buses and we're trying to help communities to be able to do cultural work, yeah, like mm. doing yumbi dances, yeah. Um, but... Often the problem was those communities didn't want those people to come into their community because of the complexity of of that community. And it'd be great if we started looking at things like could we have stomping grounds that Mm. were on that so that you could organise when the buses come down that that community could then deliver a dance. And, And I think it's the complexity of all of that is the beginning of the journey that we now we sort of have a a vision of what it can be and it's all like how do we put all the pieces together yeah. and that's all of us yeah. contributing to the development yeah. of that. It's interesting in the case of sort of drawing the regions into focus around how that could help in the metro as well because I was looking at a stat that was saying that the attraction of arts and culture in the regions is greater than it is in Perth metro for tourists. It's sort of 80% or in the northwest, I think the stat was for, and 57% in Perth Metro. So the Metro is helped by the interface with the regions. Is that a fair observation, Di? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. 
Tourism Western Australia has invested in a program called Camping with Custodians to do exactly mm. what you've just outlined. And so we have six Camping with Custodians sites that we've invested in. The, the most recent one, which I was very lucky to go up to the Dampier Peninsula to launch a couple of months ago, is Jadigen. Um, and this is traditional owner country where we've worked with the traditional owners. We've They've all got a fire pit, that's their signature fire pit, but all of the sites are different. They own them and we've just invested in in the sites. People can come with, depending on where it is, a caravan or a tent or, or whatever, and the traditional owners of that site, that land, manage it, they operate it, they own it, they run the event, um, they run the tours, they take people out fishing, they take people, you know, they sit down and... Um, you know, go through language and culture and that kind of thing, anything that you want. So we're so proud of that program. When are we going? Um, yeah. <laughs> but to your point, the north of Western Australia is quite um, advanced, I guess, in this kind of commercial activity around Indigenous storytelling and creating these sort of tourism-related opportunities. And we've often, as a board, spoken about, well, what's the opportunity for down south and around the metro area? Because, you you know, it just doesn't seem normal to have... Um, a camp in Perth kind of thing. It's just something that's not going to happen. But are there places down uh, in the Great Southern or maybe uh, in the Wheat Belt that would be perfect for a similar kind of program? Mm. And that's definitely something that we're regularly looking at and would be, um, as long as there is a traditional owner group that wants to work with us, we will, you know, look at any options. Mm. And I think I think um, there are other offerings that might happen in Noongar country that's a little different to what happens up north. Like, uh, you know, you kind of, it is a capital city. Perth is a capital city, Bulu, and it has a different a different vibe, different stories. So I would really love to see, uh, no Mark is, has great plans for the Perth Cultural Centre. So it's going to be really amazing. I am looking forward to sitting with you guys in five years' time and talking about all of the amazing developments where Noongar culture is just embedded right into the right into those built form developments. I'm really excited about that. I think the Perth Cultural Centre will be one. Fremantle's looking at some amazing stuff. I'd love to see some some more built form interpretation of Noongar culture and as well as the post-colonial stories, because there are many of them down at Cottesloe, which is, you know, a little little neglected. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were employed to look at rejuvenating the Cottesloe foreshore with Cardno. <laughs> rejuvenating, such a great word, isn't it? Yes. Sounds like it's getting Botoxed. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> Needs a little more than Botox, really, I think. Um, so I had some really great conversations with elders and worked with the town of Cottesloe, their, their local history centre, to research stories that are particular to the, the Cottesloe foreshore. And there were, there were multiple stories. So there's a little story about about, oh, there's Mudarup rocks, which is, Mudar is the yellow-finned tuna, sorry, yellow-finned whiting. And in summer, or during Bunaroo, that's when the Mudar runs. So that's why it's Mudar, Mudarup, because that's mm. when that, that particular fish is running. That's when they would have camped on there to fish for that particular fish. So that's a massive story. Those rocks are Cottesloe, they're Mudarup rocks. Yeah. 
How many West Australians do you reckon know that story? Not many. Why is it not interpreted at Cottesloe? Yeah. Why? Why? Um, there's another story about Peter's pool. So Peter was a little boy who was the son of an, a past mayor of Cottesloe and he was really sick, really sick little boy and he would be carried on his dad's shoulders down from where he lived at North Cottesloe down to where the reef is in front of Barquetta and the Blue Duck that little pool where people, yeah. it's really great to, for toddlers to learn how to swim. He was carried down there daily to have a little swim and the locals came to know that as Peter's Pool because that was where he learned to swim. He, he passed away, but it's still colloquially known as Peter's mm. Pool, but how many people would know that it's Peter's Pool because of that little story? And I guess the value too, sorry to interrupt, Helen, uh, the value with Cottesloe particularly as well is it reminds me straight away that in all of my interactions with Perth Festival over the years, that Cottesloe is a place where a lot of visiting artists are taken by the festival as a, you know, for a bit of R&R or when they first arrive in Perth. So if I could return to the festival, because I I think we can't really have this conversation without talking about Perth Festival and Fringe. Di, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how the interface between between the festivals and tourism works, because I guess that's the prime example, isn't it? Yeah. So Perth Festival and Tourism Western Australia have a great relationship. We fund and support the festival, provide funding and support to the festival. We're doing other work with the festival. Fringe Festival has been different in that it's been challenging because the last two years has been COVID and then prior to that was really the first year that they came to tourism looking for any kind of support or investment and they had an idea for um, bringing tourists from Singapore into Perth and it was successful and I think they've come back and I think we will go back into uh, exploring that opportunity with them again. The City of Perth actually, just at our last council meeting, agreed to fund Fringe, I think, $1.2 over three years. And, you know, I think what's really important and what we, at the, certainly at the City, when we put to, pulled together our events sponsorship framework, we saw the importance of multi-year funding because there's just so much administrative work having to administratively acquit every single year. By the time you've pulled your event off, then you have to go back and sit down and, you know, audit your accounts and and invest so heavily every year in doing that. So to um, lodging more sponsorship applications, like living hand to mouth. So that's another part of uh, Tourism West Australia has been quite good at giving multi-year funding agreements, but the City of Perth is going to start looking at that as well. And so what's the what are the measures uh, between tourism and Perth Festival then in terms of success in bringing international tourists to Western Australia and national for that matter? So what's what was quite advanced and I suppose sophisticated about the Perth Festival model is its international distribution list. So it is the Perth International Arts Festival. So for many, many years, and it's been fortunate enough to have that base funding from Lottery West that has allowed it to kind of evolve and grow and, and get quite sophisticated in the way it operates. So access to that international distribution list is kind of key for um, attracting an international traveller to um, put Western Australia on their consideration list. And so that really worked for them and that they were able to convince us when we you know, went through and had a look at uh, funding opportunities um, the right level of funding to be able to support them. I think the 
The critical thing for arts and the arts sector in Western Australia is getting an understanding of, you know, if there's there's a couple of parts. One part is understanding what value it brings just dynamically to cities and places by infusing arts in everything that you do. But the other bit is um, having access to distribution lists and agents normally can do this with sporting sporting events. So, you know, I've, I've got the name of a few agents that we've worked with um, and they do packages. So we'll work with uh, TASA, T-A-S-A for AFL and ICON, ICC Travel um, for the ICC Men's World Cup, STH Travel. What, what we do is we invest in um, funding with these partners who have access to international international travellers and they will package up experiences for them. So they'll package up a flight, access to, you know, whether it be the, the cricket or the football or, or whatever, uh, and they will take a commission um, and clip the coupon on the way through. And so there's not as much of that that goes on in our arts sector here. We're working on that with Alec Coles at the moment for the WA Museum. Fantastic. Um, and just trying to get that, that sort of tourism trade um, sophistication into some of our larger arts organisations that are, you know, have globally recognised talent, um, whether it be Wozo, Co3, the WA Ballet, Opera, but what international travel operators want are commissions. Mm. And so they will bring people here if they can get a commission from a ticket sale. Right. Yeah. I want to spend a good chunk of time envisioning this future. But before I do that, I would like to just ask you, each of you briefly to say, at the moment, when someone comes from either interstate or internationally to visit Perth, where do you automatically take them? I'll start with you, Helen. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, so this isn't a right now answer. This is a uh, I'm looking forward to taking them to the um, Aboriginal Cultural Centre when it's when it's built. I'm so excited about that great decision, federal government and mm. McGowan government. Great job. Thank you, Di. Uh, Kings Park usually. Yeah, Kings Park, Point Wild, the river, Billia. Let's talk about the future. I am imagining that we are in a moment where we have incredible opportunity. There's a lot of intent on both sides to, to do something to a great level of excellence and with a great amount of collaboration. So let's look at, Helen, you spoke about five years, in five years' time, but let's even extrapolate out to 10 or to 20 years to, to give a bit of breadth. What would you like to see happen in the short term that will blossom out into something truly incredible for the interface between arts and culture and tourism in Western Australia? I like starting at the ground. So I think investing in developing local talent is really important and that's how you get the Bona Wanjanis because that's all homegrown talent. Um, so investing in young people and emerging talent now so that in 5, 10, 15 years' time they're going to be ready to do the next big mm. thing. That's really important. Mm -hmm. um, investing in built form kind of tourism offerings locally and in the region and making sure that they uh, provide whatever amenity that tourists need but also 
um, tell stories, so public art and interpretation as part of those, which is happening, and that's really great. That's happening, like if we look at Rotness, that's happening there right now, which is really good. Um, they're, the, they're the two big things. I think what, um, what Di's talking about with those packages sounds really exciting. That'll pay off in five years' time, but we need to have something for those guys to sell. And when you talk about investing in local talent, what, can you be more specific about that? What do you mean by investing in them? Uh, so here I'm looking at um, the DLGSC and I'm looking at City of Perth and I'm looking at those funders. So if we look at um, organisations like the Blue Room, that's where a lot of people cut their teeth in theatre. Where did you start, Mark? The Playhouse from yeah. work experience at uh-huh. 15. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, those kind of grassroots organisations that are quite often glossed over but actually are really foundational to, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to use it, our arts ecosystem are <laughs> re- <laughs> Sorry. really important, really, really important. Mm. Mark? Well, I just want to say one point about that. We sort of started that with the festival. I made Noongar Wonderland last year. And part of the decision as the senior creatives is that we would mentor someone the next year because Ian made a three-year program and then the year after that they would take over. So that it's really important, the transition of knowledge from Mm. one generation to the next. Mm. It's such a Noongar thing to do, it's such an Aboriginal thing to do, but to actually weave that into what we do and have the confidence about transferring that knowledge and letting that person and seeing that person grow is really important. In general, we've got an a big marker coming up in 2029. It's the 200th year of settlement. And I remember, because I started in 1979, um, and it was a pretty big event in WA when I first started that work, was that festival that we did. I remember that festival. Do you? In 1979? I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. it was this the blue d- blue T-shirt, light blue yeah. T-shirt with the swan. Didn't it say way 79? Yeah. Mm. And you remember it too, Mary. And I think that <laughs> this is a great opportunity coming up. So I've been speaking with elders um, from down south about some of the possibilities and they're only the beginning, they're only conversations and I think that's really important that we don't jump into this is how it should be, that it is a conversation and an understanding together that leads to meaningful projects of worth, yeah, Mm -hmm. and sometimes they take a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. But 29, that's enough time for us to really start talking together so that we can change the conversation that we grow together and the big part for me is the exchange of cultures so that one of the good things that that I've done before that I was really really excited by was an exchange with an Indian dance company and it was from Junchunjera which is on the border of South Australia and Western Australia and with a dance company in Kerala just by having to explain who they were meant that there was an exchange of cultures and understanding. And I think the more that we can do that on large scale and big scale, you know, and that people are proud of their heritage and all the complexity of whatever they are, and that they bring in people from their cultures overseas and are proud about Western Australian wanting to show that. And I think that's really, really important. And we can do that by cultural exchanges and festivals. And I think 
that would be where I would be really fascinated into the intersection of that cultural exchange and what that means for art and what that means for bringing people to WA. Mark, I'm interested in just exploring the 2029 date a little bit further because it's going to take a lot of sensitivity to turn that into uh, a year of celebration for Aboriginal people. Uh, And I'm curious to know what kinds of things you think will be appropriate to really elevate Aboriginal culture and to, you know, for it not just to be almost like a year uh, of Australia Day. Well, really, it's got to relate back to truth-telling and all of the history in all its complexity so that people can express their grief, can express their wishes for improvement and and to make things better. And that, that comes down to truth-telling and I think that process has started. It's been a very long one and a hard one and I don't think it'll be easy and in and in no way any different from the truth-telling sessions that happen in South Africa as well. They're complex, difficult things to talk about but if we are mature enough to do it, then we have the chance to grow as a community and have a better place to live in because we're standing in each other's shoes and we're empathising and we're wanting things to get better for all of us in WA. Mm. There's a story that um, Ron Bradfield tells that I really love, particularly when we're looking at that significant date. So he talks about Perth and the fact that Perth was named by Sir George Murray, who was um, the colonial secretary at the time. So he told... uh, James Sterling to come out and and, um, settle the Swan River Colony, found the Swan River Colony and asked him to name it Perth after his, where he was born in Perthshire in Scotland. So James Sterling did that. Perth is obviously not the only Perth in the world. Um, Mm. Ron asks, how many Perths are there in the world? How many Perths do you reckon there are? Three. Three? Mm. More. Really? 17. There are nine Perths alone in the States. There are two wow. in Australia. There's one in Tasmania and one right here oh, yes. where we're standing. Yes. But, and here's the cracker, there's only one Bulu. Exactly. Yeah. I think you guys have nailed it with your ad campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Di, right at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that it, in a few weeks' time, the arts and culture sector and tourism will be in conversation with each other. Is this the first time that of a sort of a formal gathering to have a big discussion about the future? Uh, certainly, the Arts and Culture Trust, which is a statutory authority, and the Tourism Western Australia Board. I don't know it's the, if it's the first. Well, it would be, actually, because the Mm. trust was only just set up a couple of months ago (laughs) Uh, or reimagined the Perth Theatre Trust. So, yeah, it's the first time that we probably properly come together to share each other's strategies and to sort of open the curtain into each other's worlds and the way that we have to operate and the parameters that guide our investment decisions and... Uh, the parameters that guide, guide their investment decisions. There's other boards such as Venues West that Tourism West Australia has a lot of interaction with. Venues West are obviously the the statutory authority that owns Perth Arena, HBF Stadium, Optus Stadium. Uh, so we have a lot to do with them. So we're going to do a similar kind of session with them as well. And do you already have a sense of of what the intent is going, going in there, what, even the foundations of a vision? Of a vision... 
for tourism in relation to its interface with arts and culture? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a willingness and a desire to make it work. We've got a few rough ideas of how it has worked in the past and Tree Speak, Bornawanagi, it was a classic example of that and we just it's just an education piece between uh, all of our agencies to understand how we get things over the line. I think there's an absolute willingness and desire and it comes straight from the top, straight from the Premier Mark McGowan, Roger Cook and David Templeman. They all want these really good outcomes for arts and, arts and culture in Western Australia. It's the glue. It brings, it's it's the bit that's missing from our um, suite of activity over the calendar year, and, and it's a really critical part. So we we want to work out how we can make it work and build capacity. I think there's two uh, key things around driving tourism outcomes in Western Australia: is access, getting people here and getting them around the state and experience. We need to ensure that they have a great experience while they're here. And that incorporates not just, you know, we need more regional um, hotel development, we need more accommodation in uh, various parts of Western Australia, and we need more investment in infrastructure and, and those built form attractions for sure. But we also need investment in the experience that they're gonna have in terms of learning about our culture and who we are and being exposed to that in the arts scene. So, Mark, will you be at this meeting as Director of Place with the Arts and Culture Trust? I'm not sure, but I'll certainly make myself available if I'm required. I've been working on some strategic work for us within the ACT on on an artistic level. But what really surprises me is that in, in looking into it all from the government's vision as a whole down through all the departments, it's actually becoming more and more aligned. And I think as that vision becomes more aligned, then all the processes behind it will become easier. And and I think that's pretty exciting too. So let's imagine you do have a seat at that table, because I know you do have some very grand vision for Western Australia and, and how arts and culture could could be, you know, utilised in the tourism story. What What would you be saying? I think it's like sport in in lots of ways. I did, you know, I played a lot of sport as a kid as well and and I think sport is really great in making an event have weight. Yeah. It's like we do an arts event and we're often very critical of it. Right? We want to assess it, want to pull it apart a bit and go, no, I don't know if that's really me. And I thought so-and-so in 58 did that so much better. Whereas at sport is everyone has an enthusiasm and a building towards this event, yeah? And we're less critical of it. And I think the way that we get more excited culturally is exchanging stories with each other on scale. And, and I think we just have this great opportunity of doing large-scale events in Perth especially and throughout the regions, as especially getting towards the, anniversary, the, uh, the marking of the 200 years of settlement, is when there's works of scale, whether it be a big music festival, that we look for opportunities to make it even a little bit larger and have more people in it because then... The expertise is required. We keep building. We keep building our capacity and our ability to make things, and not rely on others externally. And and I my my biggest thing is the ultra intercultural exchange because I think that's what 
it really comes down to the essence of, you know, Noongar culture and other cultures that are all on the same place, all are not together, and us becoming... I mean, it's remarkable how well, with such the diversity of cultures we have in Western Australia and how well everyone gets on. Like, that is something to really celebrate in itself. And I often think we forget about that, you know, and that it's not only on a culinary experience that we get to experience all of that, but it'd be great if we expanded that culturally too in dance and performance as well. I think you just touched on a, a really good point around music festivals. That's something that I feel would be really, really beneficial somewhere either at the start or at the end of the Fringe Perth Festival season because from a tur- tourism perspective, if you've got a you know, three to four month solid, consistent period of activity annually, then over time people will buy a ticket and come to Western Australia to experience one of those, one or two or all three of those um, events. And I feel like a music festival is the missing piece of that mm. that puzzle for me. And so if anyone's got any... <laughs> Western Australian Music's doing a three-day festival in the beginning of November this year. And uh, and I think you're dead right. It, it is taking those areas, identifying, like October, what a beautiful time of the year. The wind's down. Yeah, it's pretty bummy. It's not like in the middle of February or March where you know at 6 o'clock you're probably going to get blown over when the sea breeze really cuts in hard. But there's something about October that's magic. Mm. And an event like a big musical festival, a music festival would be awesome in October, that we look at these key points and these key times and, you know, the hard thing is bringing everyone to the same table to talk. It's like I, it was interesting, I was in a meeting the other day about governance and Barbara, I think it's Berndt, I might have her name wrong, she's a, a Noongar consultant, she was saying that Binder. often... Pardon? Barb Binder? Yeah, Binder. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Sorry, Barb. What's really good, she was saying that often uh, organisations want to look at things in little sections and once we've done that little thing, we tick it off, yeah? And so, yes, we've done that and that's achieved now. Where And she was saying that most Aboriginal cultures look at it holistically and when you look at things holistically, it takes longer than the to-do list checklist, Yeah. And it might take a little bit longer, but I'm hoping that we can all get together and talk. And so we come to this consensus, let's have a music festival in October. And I'd pity you having to try to organise that time. <laughs> but I'm sure that that's the aim. And if we all get behind it, then, we, you know, there's possible outcomes mm. from that. that. Like in the visual arts, we could, when I was at the city of Perth years ago, um, 20 years ago, I was looking at a, um, a visual arts festival, so a triennial or a biennial. And at the moment, Sydney Contemporary is on, which is massive. It's a massive visual yeah. arts festival over there. Um, most of the visual arts uh, workers over here in Perth, I think, would be over there right now. And that's coming hard on the back of the um, Sydney Biennale, which is also really massive. Um, it would be great to have something like that in Perth, similar to the craft triennial that's being run, that's looking at where we live in terms of where the ocean falls, yeah. you know, 
Indian Ocean. Indian yeah. Ocean rim. Yeah, the yeah. rim, the, those rim. Um, and, and have a visual arts festival that's actually for yeah. the public so that it involves all of the galleries as well. Um, that would be a really massive thing to do. But also look at festivals so they're not just one discipline either. Mm. Like I went to a great festival in India in Goa, Serendipity, where it was culinary, visual arts and performing arts. Mm. So you would walk, watch a show, have a feed and then go and look at some art. It was like, it was such a great week. I was can there we, for a week and we, I just, it's around a lake and I just looking at something and that was a fantastic um, experience. I feel like uh, this has been a, a really, truly optimistic conversation because we're ha- having it right at a moment where we've acknowledged ourselves through this, the branding of this campaign and can stand very solidly in understanding who we are. And there seems to be a lot of intent around really stepping into that vision and, and really celebrating who we are. So it's been such a pleasure listening to the three of you talk about this this afternoon. Helen Curtis, Di Bain, Mark Howitt, thank you so much. Thanks, Mary. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Buddha one. You've been listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine, produced in partnership with the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. The Chamber of Arts and Culture, WA, is a policy and advocacy body representing the arts and cultural sector in Western Australia. The Chamber believes that a vibrant and diverse arts and cultural scene is essential for economic, social and personal wellbeing. This podcast was made on Noongar Buja, mixed by Gemma King, with theme music by Josh Hogan and Ed Beckley of Envelope Audio and generously supported by a grant from Lottery West. For more arts news and stories, head to WA's award-winning arts magazine, seesawmag.com.au.